Definitely the coolest song yet here on the show. Mm, love it, Prince and Sign of the Times. And that's the choice of our guest presenter. Who is it today? Lawson Naidu is the Executive Secretary of the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, celebrated uh, the anniversary of the Constitution. And we thought it would be good to get him on the line, hear what his music is, and talk to him not only about that, but also about uh, a couple of other things as well. Lawson Naidu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. So, Lawson, Prince, Sign of the Times... Yeah, well, you know, uh, well, firstly, it's it's an incredible song. It's, uh, you know, uh, the meaning is it's a lament of the Reagan era in the U.S. in the 1980s, yep. uh, you know, drawing the, 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 the sharp contrast in the kind of society uh, that Reagan and Reaganomics provided, uh, not just to the U.S., but to the world. Uh, the arms race failing to deal with basic socioeconomic issues. HIV. And it's a song, song that really resonated with me and, uh, you know, and Prince, as an artist, was uh, someone who was probably uh, decades, if not centuries, ahead of his time as as a musician, as a commentator. Yeah. And I was I was very fortunate to have seen him live three times. And uh, the final time was in 1990 at uh, Wembley Arena in London, and it was a memorable day because uh, I went dashed straight from uh, 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 a Nelson Mandela press conference at the end of his visit to the UK, where uh, a press conference at the Royal Commonwealth Society. And uh, I've never seen, and I'm not sure it's ever been seen before, but uh, the hard-nosed British media uh, giving Mandela a standing ovation <laughs> as he walked into the press conference. Just something that was... Uh, okay, Lawson, I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm not sure if you're moving around. Your line is cracking up a little bit. Just um, if we can just check and see how it goes. Otherwise, we will have to call you back. But let's wait and see how that goes. Lawson, um, I'm going to take you back in time. You've mentioned that particular incident. And and I must say, just imagining that moment of, uh, as you say, the hard-nosed British media (laughs) standing up and giving a standing ovation. There's something quite marvelous about that. I'm going to... uh, uh, get you to answer something we've been asking our listeners uh, all the way through the show. The uh, the number, 108, what does that mean for you? Um, it's the Act number Constitution, Act 108. Of- That's exactly it. So what we said to the listeners earlier is what does the number mean? There are a couple of people who got it right, but indeed, as you say, Act 108 is uh, the number of the Constitution. And if I'm not mistaken, the most important act of the, con- of, of, of the country. Indeed, it's the, you know, it's the foundation stone of our d- uh, democracy. It lays out uh, the kind of society that we, we want to create uh, in South Africa based on human dignity, on equality, on respect for human rights. Uh, but it also sets out uh, a system of governance uh, with the uh, the powers that are uh, allocated to to government, to the legislature, to the judiciary, uh, and puts in place the building blocks of creating a more equal society by um, having a number of Chapter Nine institutions that are there to really ensure that government does uh, what the constitution requires it to do in terms of using public resources responsibly. Uh, to advance uh, the human rights of, of the South African people. 
There we go. Act 108 of 1996. Mike and Mokapane, Limpopo, Tosa Mofakeng and Bloemfontein, Joseph Tairu and Polokwani. You all got that one absolutely right. And lots of you uh, gave other numbers as well, which were kind of interesting or other reasons for the numbers. So we did think we'll just put it uh, out for you. Lawson, I want to start uh, with you as a youngster. Um, There's a certain point in someone's life where they become politically involved, politically aware, um, socially aware, and and there are various different reasons for why that happens. Talk to us about uh, your own opening up to that. Well, you know, I think uh, anybody growing up in in South Africa in the 1960s and the 1970s would have seen the the stark racism of the apartheid system. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, you know, growing up in in Durban, you know, that was the front and center of, of, of everything that uh, was our day, daily lived experience. Seeing the, uh, you know, the, the superb uh, facilities that were provided, you know, for example, along the beachfront in Durban for, uh, that were set aside as the white beaches. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Indians, colors and blacks being uh, relegated uh, further down the line where there was pretty much nothing in terms of, of infrastructure. So those were, you know, some of the things that that drew into focus. And I remember questioning my parents as to why we couldn't go to the White Beach and Hmm, enjoy the facilities that were there. So those are the things that really make one uh, start to think about the kind of society we live in, even as a a very young sort of six, seven-year-old. So let's talk about uh, the society that we are living in and that we move towards. we well, we'll talk about the present right now, but let's just take you to um, your exile in the UK and that particular experience, because in many ways that was the positioning of for you of of the work that you do now. It it framed you in so many different ways. Uh, yes, indeed. So you know, I I uh, went to the UK as as a child. I was twelve years old when I left with. Uh, with some of my family, yeah, and uh, went to school there, and and uh, you know, uh, but always you know retained a, a very strong allegiance to South Africa, c- kept up to date with what was happening here, and that was my political political awakening really hmm. in, in, yeah. in, in in those respects. And uh, when I went to uh, finally went to university, I immersed myself in the anti-apartheid movement. And as a result of which, I uh, eventually joined the uh, the African National Congress in 1984-85, just as I finished university, and uh, spent the rest of my time in the UK uh, very closely associated and working with and for the ANC. I was uh, based at the ANC office in London from 1987 until I returned to South Africa in 1992. So uh, a very strong uh, uh, involvement in the, in, the, uh, in the struggle from an exile perspective in those years. You mentioned exile perspective. And as you were saying, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that. And I'm interested in uh, what we can learn from uh, being in exile, from being at a distance. So looking at it all from a distance. Yeah, well, there were a couple of aspects to this. You know, obviously, one is uh, was yearning to be at home, uh, particularly yeah. in the in the, that time of the mid eighties and uh, uh, onwards, where you know the, the the scale of the struggle had ramped up to an incredible level domestically, uh, with the formation of the UDF, the coming to fore of the uh, the burgeoning trade union movement, uh, the mass democratic movement. And yet, in in exile, we were focused on on uh, providing support to South Africa by uh, uh, 
uh, lobbying for for uh, economic, uh, cultural, and trade sanctions against South Africa. The sporting uh, boycott was in full swing at that time. So you know it was important to be able to say, okay, we're in exile. This is our role uh, sure. in terms of contributing to the struggle, but also trying to pr- provide political uh, support for the uh, for the activities that were taking place inside of the country. Coming back to South Africa, did it feel as though you were coming back to a place that was intrinsically rooted in your heart, or did it feel new? Did it feel different? Uh, well, I made the deliberate choice when I came back in 1992 to uh, to go back home to Durban. Yeah, uh, and uh, I felt that that was uh, that was going to be important because that was the place I left, and it was important for me to come back to that place. Yes, uh, even even though it was a, a, a difficult time, my mother had just died three months before I came back, and uh, so I went back, and there was no immediate family there. I had lots of support from extended family and friends. Uh, but it was important to go back home and and begin to find my way in South Africa from my home base again. Do you remember what the first thing was that you did when you got back? Um, well, I went to uh, went to my my uh, my uh, parents' home uh, yeah. and I had to stop there because that was for me was a very important thing was to say I'm home yeah. and this this is my home. Yeah. What does home mean for you? I mean, when I say that, I'm thinking of Sisonke Msumang's book. Uh, where she talks about home, and, and, and in many ways, home is is not a physical necessarily. But for you, what you're saying is that it was a physical. Well, for me, I think that 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 was an important uh, part of the transition of of coming back to South Africa, having been away and having grown up uh, in the UK. I, as I say, I left South Africa when I was twelve. I came back when I was twenty nine. Yeah, uh, and it was about. It was. I, I felt I needed that uh, that uh, to be in Durban to be able to reconnect. Uh, with home, with my roots, with uh, what was familiar to me about about home. Yeah. Lawson, you've moved uh, into an extraordinary space now. And I, I'm, I'm, I mean, there's so many different articles that one can read just about um, the actions that um, the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution has been involved with. I mean, constantly appearing um, with regards to a focus on how we protect the South African constitution, but also how we use the the constitution to drive the politics of this country in potentially the right direction. Talk to us about KSAC and the work that you've been doing. I mean, you've been in the news literally every week for the last couple of weeks. Well, you know, KSAC was established in in 2010. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a a feeling at the time amongst the, the, you know, the people that were... uh, the inspiration behind the establishment of this organization, people like uh, Jeff Badland, uh, Mampela yes. Rampele, the late Kada Asmal, uh, and so on, who recognized and had the foresight to see that the, uh, the Constitution was going to come under attack and hmm. uh, that the Constitution had not been used as the kind of mechanism uh, that it was intended in order to improve the lives of South Africans. And uh, a group of people came together uh, who fund- fundamentally saw the Constitution as providing a roadmap for the kind of society that we want to uh, achieve, that it is a fundamentally transformative document. And unlike uh, some people who now argue that it's an obstacle to change, we see it very much as, uh, uh, as a mechanism for change. And if we understand and interpret and implement the Constitution properly, we will achieve that vision that is set out there. So that was really the inspiration behind it. 
And it was really about trying to say to South Africans, you need to understand this document. You need to know how to yeah. claim your rights. Unfortunately, what has happened uh, uh, since 2010 is um, is really having to, to fight to uh, protect the gains and to ens- ensure institutional integrity in the institutions of gov- uh, government uh, and to ensure that uh, we don't lose the gains that the Constitution had realized in terms of the separation of powers, the power of Chapter 9 institutions, and uh, you know the, the obligation on the state to deliver on the rights in the Bill of Rights. So let's let's simplify this down because I think it's you've mentioned two words around the Constitution that are, that I think are critical. The one is that there are um, there's an argument that the Constitution has become an obstacle to change, and then there's what you're saying is that it is a mechanism for change. Break that down in simple terms for us so that we can understand both of those positions. Well, you know, perhaps the easiest way is to use an example in terms of the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Uh, it it uh, commits the government to uh, the, what it, uh, the phrase that is used is the progressive realization of these rights, whether it's right to health, housing, uh, water, sanitation, is that there is that uh, responsibility of this on the state. And therefore, we it's a recognition that those rights cannot be delivered to all 15.8 million South Africans immediately, but there needs to be a plan in place to do that. And what is that plan that government has in place? How is it going to extend those rights over a period of time? And that's something that we feel that is not being adequately done. It's not being adequately budgeted, uh, ignoring the fact that for the moment that we're facing a fiscal crisis. But in the last 27 years, yes, there's been significant progress in all of those, but is it done according to a systematic plan that says, this is where we, uh, uh, we're going and this is how we're going to allocate resources to be able to achieve those goals rather than to say, when we have the money, we'll do it. Hmm. I think you've clarified that. Lawson, um, many people will say, yeah, the um, Constitution is stopping me from getting, uh, earning money from, you know, all various different, uh, my rights are, are being are being, uh, what would the word be, are, are not being supported by the Constitution. And yet, um, we need to imagine what a life would be without this Constitution and what a life would be with uh, a Constitution that was suddenly changed overnight. And we are seeing that in various different countries globally. Talk to us about what that could mean and look like. You know, if we didn't have the, the, uh, uh, the protections that the Constitution affords us, um, we would, as you say, uh, be a very different society. We would, uh, we would not have made uh, the progress that we have made over the last 27 years. And why we, whilst I lament the fact that uh, a lot more could and should have been done, uh, we must recognize the vast improvement in the, the kind of society that we have today compared to what we inherited in 1994. So those protections are there in the Constitution and they provide uh, uh, the ability for us to uh, 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 to give expression to the rights and the values that that exist in the constitution. I'm not sure. I, I don't have children in a very young class or ECD, but surely this is something that like should be started in a very early, basic way for kids. I mean, I know Play Africa do some wonderful work around the constitution for for school kids and teenagers. But surely this is something that if we had to see a different approach to how it was being taught to us, being offered to us, that we might then be able to change how we think about it. 
Uh, I couldn't agree more, Michelle. I mean, this is something that I think, again, where government has, has failed yeah. is, is to, is to uh, uh, include uh, an awareness of the constitution of uh, the kind of society that South Africa aspires to be as part of the curriculum from the very earliest ages in, in, in our school system so that people, uh, young, young people grow up with knowledge and, and uh, uh, an identification with the constitution as a, as a, as a tool, as a mechanism that can help them to shape their lives and to, be, and to realize uh, you know their, their their personal objectives, their personal goals, and and to real, begin to feel a real affinity with that constitution as a guiding yeah. tool for their own development plus the development of the society around us. And not to feel afraid to critique it, but also to, as you say, understand that it is simply an overarching mechanism that can be used to our advantage. Indeed, I mean the constitution, you know, uh, is not a static document. It's the framework. Uh, the values and the principles that underpin it, perhaps, are. Yeah. Uh, but it is a document that needs to be critiqued. It's been, you know, it's been amended 17 or 18 times already. So it's not cast in stone. It has to be constantly uh, reviewed and improved to, uh, you know, to bring it into line with the realities of the modern day. <laughs> I, thought, yeah, I think that's a brilliant comment, actually. Lawson, um, we're going to go to your second song and... Oh, you got a good choice, pal. <laughs> we, we, we were like, yeah, we like this. Bob Marley's Redemption Song, and I'm sure that takes you back in time as well. The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. 9.36, uh, our guest is Lawson Naidu. We are talking about the Constitution, but also about what it means to be in South Africa in so many different ways. We've got a couple of questions for you here, Lawson. Um, but the first one was the one that I said came from Felix uh, on Twitter, just asking who will say if the Constitution is good for them or not. Well, you know, uh, indeed, and I, I agree with the question. Uh, you know, the, the Constitution does not provide a, a self-implementing mechanism. Uh, it is a roadmap, and it's up to us as, as ordinary South Africans to claim the rights that are there. Uh, you know, Felix uh, refers to uh, land as possession, and he's yeah. absolutely right. It's, it's something that sat at the very heart of the struggle for national liberation, and it's something that government has failed to deliver. And I think uh, that if the blame is to be apportioned here, it's got to, we've got to look at government and say, has government done enough to ensure uh, redistribution of land, uh, equitable land reform in the last 27 years? And why has it failed to do so? Uh, it's not the fault of the Constitution. Yes, we're going through a process now where Parliament is looking at amending Section 25. But in our view, uh, we don't need to amend the Constitution in order to effect meaningful uh, land reform. It's, it's about political will of the government to be able to do so. They're beginning now, finally, uh, to take uh, uh, progressive steps to do that. But, you know, some would argue that it's, it's very late. And uh, similarly, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, for far too many South Africans, the Constitution remains a distant vision yes. uh, rather than a lived reality. And that's the gap that we have to close. So uh, that's that's exactly what our next listener is asking. Golisa is like saying that the constitution was given to its citizens uh, on, and on the introduction we had it. But how will one know our rights if we're not in possession of 
I mean, Elise is saying the book and how many times Elise wants to know, are the laws contradictory to constitutional rights? And how would we know that? And I, I think that that's exactly what you're saying is how do we make it um, a document that people understand, recognize, can read, can say this goes against my constitutional rights? Yeah. So, you know, even though the Constitution is is written in very accessible language, it's still a document that, uh, you know, would be difficult for many people to, to, to grasp and get around. And I think there's a responsibility on government uh, uh, to popularize the Constitution. We spoke about uh, the schools earlier. Uh, CASEC has, for example, recently launched a podcast series uh, looking at unpacking uh, the rights in the Bill of Rights, the right to health, education, uh, housing, etc., uh, to make it <clears throat> more accessible to ordinary people so that they understand what those rights mean and what they can do to, to claim those rights when they feel that they are being discriminated against or where those rights are not, are yeah. not being provided to them. And that's an resp- ongoing responsibility that we all have. Take the responsibility. Let's talk to your first guest, uh, Gria Skuman, who is uh, from the Kada Asmel Fellowship Alumni Association. Okay, tell us about Gria. Well, uh, you know, this is a, a, a recently launched alumni association. Uh, CASAC initiated uh, a scholarship to honor the legacy of one of our founding members, uh, the late Professor Kada Asmal. And we provide a scholarship for a law student to do a master's in international humanitarian law at Trinity College, Dublin, uh, something that we've done since 2012. And this is now part of a broader uh, fellowship scheme that the Irish Embassy in South Africa uh, offer. And we've had, I think, now over 100 uh, alumni that have come through that scholarship system where South African students go to various institutions in Ireland. And they're looking at, at a networking, how they can uh, maintain their relationship with each other, maintain their relationship with, that, with Ireland, but also to, to promote development in South Africa. So I think this is an incredible initiative by young people, young professionals uh, in the early stages of their careers who are coming together and, and looking at what they can do to improve South African society. So, Gria, you're on the line. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for, for the invitation. I'm very excited uh, to be able to talk a bit about the Kada Asma Fellowship. Gria, talk to us about it uh, in relation to your own experience. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I was part of the second cohort in 2014, 2015, um, and I was supported to do a master's in social policy at the University College Cork in Ireland. Um, For those who don't know Cork, it's one of the most beautiful corners of Ireland, um, and it's quite far in the south, also known as Rebel County. Um, UCC itself is one of the more historical universities, um, and one of its most famous scholars would be uh, George Ball. So I was there for... Uh, it would have been over the summer and then the year ends in about uh, mid-June. That's when we then do our dissertation and returned to South Africa in early 2016-2017 and started um, pursuing more of a research uh, career and more recently have joined the South African National AIDS Council where I head up the Civil Society Forum Secretariat. You know, I want to put a question to both of you, and it just struck me as I was listening to you talk, Greer, is 
I'm just thinking about how to frame this. So I was a friend of mine who uh, is works at uh, at Wits University was just saying how what sometimes is, what appears to be happening often in our own universities is that this very strong sense of nationalism and, and I'm not necessarily dissing nationalism in itself, but what it does do is it closes down the opportunity to look at other countries all around the world and to engage with academia in other countries all around the world. And I wanted to know from both of you what the value of that really does do because, you know, as, as um, what's the musician's name who always says that uh, if you listen to only one type of music, you, you're simply a fetishist. So it gives you the opportunity to listen to diverse types of music. I'm putting that in inverted commas. Talk to us about that experience. I, and I'll start with you, Greer. Mm-hmm. So from a social policy perspective, it was actually um, extremely interesting because I came from um, essentially a women's sector policy background um, where we previously were coordinating civil society participation um, into the national HIV response. So going into social policy studies in Ireland, um, and then it's kind of like rooted in the European context, it was extremely interesting to see how one would engage civil society in different ways, um, the way that government interacted, um, you know, with both local politics as well as international politics. So one of the very interesting things for me was um, situating Ireland within the European context, and then also seeing what that actually meant for us um, yeah. as South Africans. So the specific resources that we had available, the mechanisms for participation, um, and really kind of opened my eyes to look at different ways of engaging. Also, just one thing I want to add here is that a novel part about the scholarship was that uh, I was also allowed or supported rather, to come and do my field research in South Africa. So I was able to take, uh, you know, kind of those best practices and uh, ways of doing things, testing them in the country, Hmm. and then being able to reflect back um, and think about, you know, the the particular dynamics. Of course, uh, the one thing that I have seen is that ultimately there are a lot more resources um, and so we are always having to do more with less, Yeah, but um, quite innovative. Well, I, I would sometimes wonder, I mean, I know we do have to do a lot more with less. I'm just thinking of being here at the SABC. <laughs> but, but you know what? As you say, it does kind of raise the level of innovation because you're constantly having to go, well, maybe it's not as easy as this, but okay, is there another way of doing it? So I think that's quite correct. Lawson, what would your take on this be? Well, Given that you do great. support the Carter Asmal Fellowship Alumni Association. Mm. You know, uh, Greer has spoken about the academic benefits of, of studying abroad, but for me, uh, uh, a big part of it is, uh, is also the non-academic benefits of simply having uh, uh, access to uh, students from other parts of the world when, you, when you're doing uh, postgraduate studies abroad like that. And uh, sharing, you know, lived experiences and sharing ideas about how different countries uh, tackle the same problems that we're facing in South Africa, and that, it's that uh, you know, that that I think you can't put a price on is that the value of of sharing that information and giving a global view to the kinds of uh, strategies that we might need to uh, incorporate in South Africa 
to tackle the, 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 the deep challenges that we face. So your own experience of having lived abroad, can you, uh, are there any specific experiences where you can go, you know what, that has stuck with me to this day. I mean, I can think of a couple of uh, being in my travels who have gone, it, it's never changed. It's, well, it's actually changed the way I am from then to now. Well, you know, and uh, again, it's a, a similar experience to Greer. So I did my um, uh, master's in international law at uh, Cambridge University and had access to, to students, uh, you know, and who became friends from all over the world, from Papua New Guinea, from uh, Argentina and Chile, sure. yeah. uh, from, uh, uh, you know, Central America, uh, from other parts of, of the African continent. And, uh, you know, we would, we, we would spend a lot of time together talking about the different challenges that we all faced and, and how our countries were grappling with them or failing to grapple with them. And that's something that, you know, that has uh, stayed with me uh, yeah. you know, for all my life. And those friendships as well, I'm sure. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. You know, it makes me think that, geez, we should be working much harder to get uh, people from all over the globe to work um, or to come and study at our universities. Indeed, it would be a, you know, it'd be a huge uh, uh, bonus for South Africa to get that sort of global uh, expertise here, global perspectives here, so that we don't uh, see ourselves in a narrow prism. Yeah. Uh, of battling against issues where the rest of the globe, uh, you know, is is doing exactly the same. Greer, um, unfortunately, we have to leave you there because we do need to go to a break. But when we come back, uh, we're going to go to your next uh, presenter, Luazi Nkapai, who is from Kala University Students Association. We'll be chatting to him in a moment. Michelle Constant on SAFM. Our guest presenter is a man who is probably recognized uh, in the media for uh, his uh, contribution to the conversation around the Constitution, but also many, uh, the State Capture Commission, uh, the legalities of the Constitution, how we protect our very vulnerable people through the Constitution. Lawson Naidu, Executive Secretary of the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. Lawson, before we go into your second guest, um, you are something part of something called the Pater Noster Group, and I have seen you uh, speak as a member of that group, but just let our listeners know what that's about um, that's a political risk consultancy that uh, I run in, in uh, conjunction with a very good friend of mine um, who's also very familiar to SAFM listeners that's Professor Richard Callan from the University of Cape Town and uh, we provide a political risk or political economy analysis of uh, what's happening in South Africa to uh, a range of corporate clients to some of the diplomatic missions and uh, you know uh, 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 you know, uh, international investors uh, uh, who are looking at South Africa as an investment destination. So those are the kinds of services that the Paternoster Group provides. So when we talk about um, something like Standard & Poor's, would you be addressing the political risk with someone like that? Uh, well, not necessarily with the ratings agencies, but people often uh, come to us and ask questions based on what the ratings agencies have said and what, what the political prognosis for, for dealing with those issues might be. And, uh, you know, when, when a, an investment decision, for example, is being made, there are a whole range of economic factors that are taken into account. But increasingly, corporates uh, are looking at the political risk of, uh, in particular, emerging market economies yeah. and comparing us to other emerging market economies. And uh, when they do so, South Africa stacks up very well. That's what we like to hear. 
Lawson, let's talk to your next guest, Luazi Inkapai, who is um, uh, part of a project called uh, Kalusa, which is the Kala University Students Association. Uh, what is that about? Well, firstly, there is no university in Kala, but uh, what exactly. it is, is it's, it's a very old uh, uh, community organization that dates back to the 1980s. And uh, it's it's uh, coming together of, of uh, uh, university students who happen to be from Kala yeah. and who've come together to try and... <clears throat> And uh, and have an impact on on uh, on uh, their community, on local, on the local economy, and uh, to hold local government to account. And they reached out to CAFAC about three years ago because they were facing enormous difficulties in getting very basic information out of the uh, municipality, which is the Sakisizwe municipality in the Eastern Cape. And we've assisted with trying to uh, uh, make uh, uh, applications under the Promotion of Access to Information Act to get simple uh, uh, information such as the Integrated Development Program, uh, the budget and the uh, plans of the local municipality, and to actually say to the municipality that the constitution and legislation says that um, communities have the right to participate in the decision-making processes of local government, and you are not giving us that uh, that opportunity. And so Calusa is one of the organizations that has been very actively working there, and uh, Luazi has been one of, uh, as a final year law student at the University of Fort Hare, has been a, a significant activist in that, and I thought it would be really good to have him on to talk more about what they are doing. Luazi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle, and uh, many thanks to Comrade Lawson for inviting me to be part of this conversation. You know, um, the, 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 the term that stands out for me as I listen to this is, is this idea of community participation. And indeed, I think Lawson has um, mentioned this in the conversation that we've had over the last hour, is this idea of how, as an individual, as a member of our community, as a member of society, we participate in the accountability or address the accountability of our government. Loazi, talk to us a little bit about that, particularly where you are, particularly if we look at Tala and also where you are at Fort Hare. Yes. Um, let me speak about the Sarkis's municipality firstly. So, Sarkis's is a Category B municipality. Uh, it's, it, 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 it works with the Krisani District Municipality in, develop, in delivering services, uh, among other things. That includes bulk infrastructure. Yeah. So this municipality has been in trouble over the past three or four years. Among other things, these problems stem from the incapacity of the elected leaders and political interference in decision-making, or, or should I say, administration. Yeah. Um, in 2018, the community, noticing these problems, among other things, corruption, uh, failure to deliver services, they effected a, a total shutdown. It was unprecedented in our community. We've never seen the town come to a standstill. Yeah. Um, so as Talusa, we tried to understand what was happening here. 
and several meetings were held with the municipality. We participated in meetings called by the municipality. But what was not coming forward was detailed information on what is the problem exactly, what is the cause of the crisis. Several allegations were made that uh, people are misusing money, administrators, municipal managers have been fired, uh, have been suspended because they are corrupt, among other things. But no, no tangible information was coming to the public so that the public could understand what is the state of the municipality exactly. So working with Kasak, uh, eventually after several attempts at requesting information from the municipality, we eventually lodged a PAIA application. So that is the application in terms of the promotion of access to information, yeah, information. act. Yeah. That was never responded to by the municipality. We lodged it at the office of the speaker. The speaker deferred it to the municipal manager. At that time, the municipality did not have a full-time municipal manager. It was an acting municipal manager who was seconded by COPTA. As part of an intervention we requested in terms of Section 139. But as I speak to you today, uh, we have not received all the information we requested from the municipality and were in the process of taking the municipality to court because of that. Luazi, I'm worried about time. We literally have three minutes left and I need to close off with um, Lawson. But I want to ask you, given the, 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 the narrative that you're engaging in, is, can you say that we can... Wait, wait. That, I'm okay. Can you say that we can make a difference either as a community or as an individual who is part of a community? That is exactly where I'm going. Yeah. Uh, the community has a role to play in, yeah. the, in, 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 the, in planning the development that yes. government will deliver. Yeah. But the community must be placed at the middle. The government should place the people at the centre. So the community in the centre and government on the, the um, I don't want to say the periphery, but in the centre is Working you together and me and, and the community. Because the it. people know the kind of development they Luazi, I want to say thank you very much for giving us the time. I do have to ask you this. There's a fantastic artist called uh, Mongezi Nkapai. Is he any relation to you? Come again? Mongezi Nkapai. No, I do not know him. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to know for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Luazi, listen, good luck, and uh, let's uh, get you through that final year of uh, uh, law at Forte. Lawson, you know, what's brilliant about uh, the people that you've brought in also is that you've brought young people in who are shifting, making a huge difference. And uh, it, it does feel as though it's time to just say, here's the card, hand it over. Well, that's really what this is about, is yeah. if we don't uh, empower the younger generation uh, to become activists, to do the work that Greer and Luazi are doing, uh, then we're not going to move forward. So it's important to, to support them, uh, provide them with the mentorship and the, the tools to be able to take the struggle forward. As Luazi says, you know, it's been a long battle in uh, the Sakisiswe municipality, and we've got local government elections coming up in a couple of months. 
and uh, communities need to put forward their their their, their views, their ideas, and hold uh, uh, elected officials to account. And if they don't deliver, as President Ramaphosa himself said a couple of weeks ago, if those councillors are not delivering, then you must vote them out. I think that's a good way to end it. Lawson Naidu, thank you for fighting the fight. Uh, we follow you with interest. It's 10 o'clock. It's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.